one of the most uncomfortable things that can occur in the life of a human being is when you, you've done the best that you can tell, you've done something that's good, it's something that's kind, you've tried your best to be pleasing to God, to be good and a blessing to others, and yet there are those that somehow observe what you've done and they put the worst possible construction on it. They, they impugn your motives even. They said, ah, you know, you were just doing this for some sort of underhanded reason. And so you find yourself being accused, you find yourself being slandered, and it's a very awkward position. Because defending yourself in any way, shape, or form, it, it almost feels icky. It makes you feel a little guilty, even if you're telling the truth. It's kind of like that question, you know, hey, do you still, do you still beat your spouse? There's no real right answer to that, is there? First service didn't get it either. Think it. Let us think in there for a minute. <laughs> and the answer is you, you don't beat your spouse at all. But if, if you answer, I continue or don't continue, you know, you're guilty. And a lot of times when you've been falsely accused, it's like that. Now, now God, our creator, knows that the way he designed us, the way he wires us to, to be falsely accused, particularly to have our, our motives impugned, that this is an agonizing thing for a human being. And, and so critical is it in his mind that evidently he dedicated an entire chapter in this book we're going to look back at, 1 Thessalonians, to deal with that problem. So you might be going through that kind of a situation now. It could be somebody in your family. It could be a friend. It could be somebody at work. And they're falsely accusing you. And maybe they're, they're falsely accusing you or saying terrible things because of your allegiance to Christ and because of your desire to serve him and maybe to be a bridge between him and someone else. That's what we're going to see when we go back to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, like I said last week, this is a very different kind of a series. Um, it's line for line, verse for verse. It's really kind of meant to help you read your Bible on your own because that's my goal always. So stylistically, it's, it's a little bit different than what we do in here. But I hope that it will still be uh, very impactful for you. So let's start today. I mentioned to you last week how this church in Thessalonica got started. It, it, the letter is written around 51 AD. Apostle Paul is the writer. He's been a follower of Jesus for about 17 years. But I want you to see for yourself in Acts chapter 17 how this church got started because it will be critical to understand what we're about to read in the entire chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. So go ahead and turn It'll be page 1252 in those Bibles that are near you on your chair, 1252, and you'll be looking at the book of Acts, chapter 17, and we'll start reading in verse 1. I have to go kind of fast because I have a lot of material. It says, after they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Paul went to the Jews in the synagogue, as he customarily did, on three Sabbath days. That's three Saturdays. He addressed them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, or is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, along with a large group of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. These are more than likely businesswomen. But the Jews, now focus in on this. But the Jews became, what is the word? Jealous. And gathering together some worthless men from the rabble in the marketplace, they formed a mob. And they set the city in an uproar. 
they attacked Jason's house trying to find Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials screaming, these people who have stirred up trouble throughout the world have come here too. Look at the exaggeration. Their jealousy is fueling them to slander the apostles and say, oh, these guys are causing trouble all over the world. Verse 7, and Jason has welcomed them as guests. So now they're, they're making Jason guilty too. Now they elevate their accusations and they are acting against Whose decrees? Caesar's. This is the emperor of the Roman, uh, Roman emperor. So this is very serious. They are acting against Caesar's decree saying there is another king named Jesus. They caused confusion among the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. And the city officials had received, when the city officials had received bail from Jason and the others, they released them. The brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea at once during the night. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue, so he starts right over again. Now, the reason I want you to understand this is now you know how this book of Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians came to be. Paul goes into the city. He goes into the synagogue. He's there for less than a month preaching about Jesus. He gathers a following, a group of followers of Jesus, but then the Jews, because of their jealousy, they start attacking because they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. When Pontius Pilate, when they brought Jesus before him in Matthew chapter 27, verse 17 and 18, Pontius Pilate says, I know why they brought you here. They brought you here out of jealousy. Pontius Pilate knew that they wanted to crucify Jesus because they were jealous of him. He was stealing their thunder. They wanted the attention. They wanted the praise. They wanted the accolades of others. These Jews wanted that feeling of importance. And now Paul was coming in there saying something different than they were teaching. And so in jealousy, they start slandering. They start making up stories about Paul and the Apostles. They, they insinuate that they are political revolutionaries. They're trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. Now, Paul is forced to leave. We saw that. He goes to Berea. He goes right back to preaching again. Now, let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you'll see why all this is so meaningful. First thought is this. When Paul left, do you think for one minute that they stopped trying to attack the followers of Christ that were left behind? Do you think they stopped trying to poison their minds, get them in trouble, turn them back away from Jesus, and to become followers again of these Jewish synagogue leaders? Well, common sense tells us they were not going to let up at all. They were going to take advantage of the fact that Paul was no longer there to teach these young believers and taught them he did because in the book of First and Second Thessalonians, we see that he taught them extensively about a lot of things, particularly the second coming of Christ. All right, let's pick up reading in Second Thessalonians. And we're going to see that the chapter deals a lot with motives because evidently when Paul left, these Jews started saying that Paul's motives were all corrupted. And that's why he abandoned them. He ran off. He, he just, you know, when he didn't get what he wanted, he ran off. You'll see as we read through these verses, they'll make sense in the light of the attack of those that were jealous and the false accusations they made. By the way, how many of you are aware that the, the word devil is one of the descriptions of Lucifer, Satan, whatever? Devil in Scripture, it's diabolos in the original. How many of you are aware that the devil or diabolos in Greek, it means the slanderer, the accuser? This is a, say, listen, when somebody falsely accuses somebody else, there's nothing more evil than a person can do. 
Satan in the Garden of Eden, he falsely accused God to Adam and Eve. He, he insinuated that, that God was a liar, not to be trusted, a power monger. He then slandered Job to God when Job, in the book of Job, chapter 1 and 2, Job, God is saying that, have you seen anybody on earth that's as loyal to me as Job? And Satan says, ah, he's loyal to you because you're buying him, you're protecting him. He doesn't like you for yourself. So slander in human form, is just carrying out the spirit, the spirit of Satan himself. All right, all that to get us into this text. Let's go now to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, about our coming to you. It is not proven to be purposeless. We read in that first chapter about how it had transformed their lives when they turned to Christ. Verse 2. But although... We suffered earlier and were mistreated in Philippi. If you read Acts chapter 16, you'll understand what that's about. He preaches Christ in Philippi. He and Silas are beaten terribly, thrown in prison. And as soon as they leave, though, they go to Thessalonica and start right up again. But although we, were, we suffered earlier and were mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the courage in our God to declare to you the gospel or good news of God in spite of much, what is the word? opposition pause for a moment if we can see nothing else let's see this you and I can be totally devoted to Christ totally living in the context of the center of God's willing word we can have good motives toward God and toward people and yet we can still be attacked we can still be opposed we can still have people slandering us Paul went through lots of of opposition he went through lots of physical harm as well as emotional harm that he had to endure when people were saying false things about him you and I would do well to understand that when we're loyal to God that does not mean that we won't experience these kinds of uncomfortable things that we would rather not experience it's an interesting thing to me that sometimes believers as soon as something starts to go a little awry in their life young believers they they think why doesn't God protect me from this why doesn't he you know defend me and that's not his program. His program is to let us go through this, and he goes through it with us. And by means of that, we become strong. We become resilient. Resistance develops strength. And we have to go through resistance to develop strength, convictions, uh, character, competence, and so forth. All right, let's go back to our text. Verse 2. Oh, excuse me, verse 3. For the appeal we make, it does not come from error or impurity or with deceit now evidently the jews back in thessalonica were saying to the followers of christ that were still left behind they were saying this, this guy paul he, he's just a nutcase he was speaking erroneous things he doesn't know the scripture he doesn't know what he's talking about then they were saying besides that he had impure motives man he, he had a dark agenda I, I i think he was a womanizer I, I think he had something up his sleeve and then they say deceit he was lying to you he was just making it up paul's not there and they are poisoning the minds of those left behind to the degree that they can this is why we have this chapter. Paul is forced to defend himself, and it's for you and I when we get into these same awkward, uncomfortable situations where we're being falsely accused so that we know how to conduct ourselves. So Paul says, our appeal, the appeal we make, it does not come from error, even though others might have said so, or impurity, or with deceit, for just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel the good news about christ so we declare it not to please what does it say people but god 
who examines what? Our hearts. Evidently, they were saying, Paul's just saying whatever he thinks you guys want to hear. And Paul is saying, no, 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 we, we didn't care about pleasing people. We were speaking the truth in love. We cared about pleasing the God that we know. And we know that he's a God that doesn't just ask what we do, but why we do it. He is a God who is ever examining the innermost motives of those that are his beings, his created beings, because that's where you can tell where a person's real heart is, real character. Paul says, we were well aware that God was examining our hearts. We don't care about those on the outside that falsely accuse because God himself is concerned about our motives as we should be as Christ's followers. He goes on. He says in verse 5, We never appeared with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for, what does it say? Greed. Greed. God is their witness. Evidently they were saying, well, Paul came there and, and he would use this flattering speech. He was buttering you up because he was setting you up. He, he had money on his mind. He wanted to set you up so he could milk you for years to come. And Paul, Paul is having to answer this, this false charge, this false accusation. You'll see later on in this passage, he answers it very forthrightly. He goes on, he says, verse 6, Nor to seek glory from who? From people either from you or from others. They were saying, oh, this guy, man, he gets off on people just looking up to him and listening to him. Now, they, it's interesting they were saying this because that, in fact, is what their problem was. The Jews that persecuted Jesus, they hated that he was taking the attention from them. The Jews that Paul had drawn away as followers of Jesus, the Jews left behind, they hated that they were no longer getting the attention, so they project their own problems onto others. How many of you ever met people like that? They accuse you of what is in fact in their own mind. Yeah. And, and often they honestly, they can't help but to do this. It's just like Satan. The fact that Satan accuses everybody, it says in Revelation 12, he accuses the followers of Jesus before the throne of God day and night. I think the reason he does that is because his own motives are so evil, so cruel, so selfish. He refuses to believe that anyone can ever have a pure, sincere unselfish motive we become folks we become what we allow to linger in us and it poisons us and it becomes the lens through which we start to view others and we project our own problems a lot of times onto others he goes on verse 7 he says although we could have imposed our weight as apostles of christ that is those that are sent by christ authoritative instead we became little children among you remember Jesus said unless you become like a little child and be converted you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven Paul says we, we became like little kids we, we weren't authoritative we weren't pushy you know that he's appealing to what they knew experientially like a nursing mother caring for her own children he says again you remember I was gentle with you I wasn't tricky I wasn't pushy I, I wasn't flashy with such affection verse 8 for you we were happy to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you recall, excuse me, because you had become dear to us. Paul's saying, come on, guys, remember us. We, we poured out our hearts to you. We opened our lives. We became transparent. We didn't just give you the message of God. We gave you our very selves. You were dear to us. Remember, remember, don't listen to what these others were, you know, saying about Paul at that time. He goes on in his appeal, verse 10, he says, Your witnesses, and so is God, as to how holy and righteous 
And excuse me, I skipped a very important verse, verse 9, forgive me. In verse 9 he says, For you recall, brothers and sisters, our toil and drudgery by working night and day so as not to impose a burden on any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Well, he's answering that charge about greed there. He's saying, you remember, we were with you for almost a month, and we never asked anything. We never asked a penny of any of you. We worked, he said, and we just wanted you to know the truth about God. We didn't want to have any barrier imposed. So he's nullifying that accusation. Now, elsewhere in the Scripture, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says that those that present the gospel or teach the gospel should live by the gospel. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that when he was church planting, he often did not receive funds from those churches later on he would once they were established and they wanted to participate in the expansion of the kingdom of God but he would not let there be any barriers so he's undermining that false accusation that he was there just for greedy purposes verse 10 he says your witnesses and so is God as to how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was toward you who believe so he's saying, you, you saw how we lived. You know our integrity. And this is a good thing for us to think about. If you read through this passage, for we, as we try to build bridges with others to Christ, as we try to reach others for Christ, as we invite others to take steps toward God, maybe we invite them to church or we invite them to study the Bible with us or whatever we do, we start having spiritual conversations. It is critical that they can see in us our sincerity, that we are literally walking out the things that we are professing to believe and trust in. If our lives are such jarring contradictions to the Christ that we present, it both undermines our message, but, but it also dishonors Christ. Paul's saying, you can remember, you, you can see how we behaved. You knew how we behaved amongst you. Critical component about being a, an effective servant of God. And we can all do this. God enables us. Verse 11, as you know, we treated each of you, now he changes it. First it was a child, then it was as a nursing mother. Now he says, and as you know, we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Now he's going to explain in verse 12 what he means. Exhorting and encouraging you and insisting, that's a strong word, insisting that you live in a way worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and his own glory. So he's saying, far from flattering speech, he's telling the Thessalonians, he says, you remember when we were there, we were encouraging you to change your behavior. We were exhorting you to change your behavior. In fact, we were insisting that if you're going to follow Christ, you've got to follow Christ. Jesus himself said in Luke 6, he says, why call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I tell you? So he says, Far from being somebody that's flattering and just saying things that people want to hear, he says, I was saying things that I knew you didn't exactly want to hear because they were going to call for life change. And none of us like life change, usually. So Paul is reminding them of these things to be proofs that indeed his motives were pure and his ministry was pure. Now verse 13, I've really been wanting to bring you there. It's a very, very cool verse. He says, and so too... We constantly thank God that when you received God's message that you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human message, but as it truly is God's message. And then this next phrase, which is at work among you who believe. That, that, there's two words there, at work. They're, they're one Greek word. It's a word, energeo. We get our word, what sounds like energeo, energeo. Energy. We get our word energy from it. It's used about 40 times in the New Testament. And here's what Paul is saying. This is really a powerful truth. He's saying that 
when Paul brought the word to them, they took it to be not just human beings talking, but as it was, God's word. And he said, in the hearts of those that trusted, who believed, Greek word pistis, it means trust, confidence, reliance, faith. He says, those that trusted in the word, those that had faith in the word, it released energeo, it released energy in them. It's a really cool concept. It's saying that when you and I hear the word of God, read the word of God, receive it into our minds, and then when we trust in God and trust in what his word says, it releases energy, it motivates us, it empowers us, but it can be short-circuited. If we read the word, hear the word, but we don't then mix it with our personal trust, and it's trust that is ready to act on the word. Trust, faith is always evidenced by our willingness to act on what God says. If we don't follow it with action, well, then we don't experience the energy of God's word being released in us. I'm going to come back to this whole thing of energy a little later on. It's, it's a very powerful concept. Let me go on. Let's pick back up reading. Verse 14. He says, For you became imitators, notice the life change, brothers and sisters, of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, because you too suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they in fact did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, persecuted us severely. They are displeasing to God and are opposed to all people because they hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Thus they constantly fill up the measure of sins, but wrath has come upon them completely. So Paul is saying far from his motives being impure, it's the Jews' motives that are impure. They attack everybody that steals their thunder, that steals their prominence. They attack Jesus himself, he says. But then he says this kind of mystical thing. It's kind of hard to understand. He says, but wrath, wrath has come upon them completely to the utmost. What did that mean? They weren't destroyed. They were still existing as a people. In fact, their temple was still functioning. Their temple would still be standing for 19 more years from the time this letter was written. What did he mean that wrath had come upon them completely? Well, what he meant was this. Whereas the Jews as a nation had been chosen by God to be the vehicle through which he would reveal himself and give that revelation to them so that they could turn it into a printed form, preserve it, and pass it on to the world. Now in the rejection of God in all his fullness in Jesus, they had lost that privilege. Remember we read in chapter 1, it said that now the Thessalonians were God's chosen. Now everyone that puts their trust in Christ takes that role that the Jews had of being the chosen of God. We are now the recipients of God's truth, and we are now to be those that present that truth to the rest of the world. They had lost their chosen position. It didn't mean that they couldn't individually still be saved. Anybody that puts trust in Christ can be saved. And so that's what it meant by wrath. Uh, sometimes the, the doctrine of God's wrath is confusing to people in Scripture. So... What we can see here is that in time motivation, first of all, it's rooted in the goodness of God. You and I as human beings were designed to be motivated by having a clear picture in our minds of what our God was like, what his plans are, what his purposes are, what his principles. And as we took that in, it was meant to move us, motivate us. We were meant, human beings are meant, you are meant to live an inspired life. The energy of inspiration is meant to be the fuel in your tank. Now I want to break down this thing of motivation a little bit because it's a very important concept. So here we go. 
Motivation is the why or the energy behind the what or the action. Everything that you and I do is motivated by something, and it's the motive that starts the action. So motive is energy that expresses itself in action. Let's go on. Motivation produces three things. It produces action, we've already said that, but then action turns to conduct. And then conduct ultimately becomes character. Right motivation, right conduct, right character. Inferior motivation, inferior conduct, inferior character. Let's look on. Motivation requires, for something to motivate us, it requires that something is desirable, I have to want it, I have to want to experience it, and I have to believe that it's doable. I won't be motivated unless I think it's possible, unless I think it's doable. I won't be motivated unless I find it personally desirable. Again, there's two basic types of motivation. Extrinsic motivation and intrinsic. Let me define those a bit. Extrinsic motivation, people do something for an external reward. Let me give you an example. We know that people will do lots of things they shouldn't do in many cases just to be accepted, just to feel like they belong, just, just to fit in. We know that people will be motivated by money, by power, by pleasure, by prominence. We know that there's all kinds of things that motivate people, but they're not necessarily the highest motivations. They're extrinsic. They're reward type of things, but they're not necessarily the highest motivation. Intrinsic motivation, people do something for the joy of doing it. There's something so desirable about it. It's just joy, the joy of doing it, or because it's what? Right. Certain things we just know, they're right. And doing those, that's intrinsic motivation. I'm motivated from within, and it's authentic desire. I see it, it's desirable, I am moved to move toward it. This is the way God intended us to be toward him, toward righteousness, toward goodness. We, we are beings that are meant to be intrinsically motivated, not extrinsically motivated completely. Some extrinsic motivation is okay. Higher motives produce higher what? Character. Intrinsic motivation, higher character. Extrinsic motivation, I'm looking for money, I'm looking for power, I'm looking for pleasure, you know, whatever. It's going to be lower character development. And then this, enthusiasm. I want to, this is where I want to get back to. That verse we read, chapter 2, verse 13, about the word of God. When we trust God and trust in his word, it releases energy in us. This word that we use in English, enthusiasm, it comes from a Greek word, enthusiasmos, and it means to be possessed by God. Possessed by God. When you and I have God's word coming into us, it's feeding our souls, it's feeding our spirits, and we trust in it. It's releasing the energy of God, and we are sort of possessed by God in the healthy way inwardly and it produces an enthusiastic personality an enthusiastic life folks how many of you know enthusiastic people are a whole heck of a lot happier than unenthusiastic people how many would agree with that statement oh yeah to be bored is something that humans hate listen as a christ follower it is normative in every season of life the toughest, the mediocre, the humdrum, uh, the, the highest. It is normative for us to be people of enthusiasm. I've walked with Jesus for 46 years, and I've been through lots of ups and downs. 
I've never been, never had a day that I didn't have enthusiasm. It, it's, it's this energy of God. It's this view of God and, and his plans and his purposes that keeps you inspired, inspired living. It's, it's a power that's different from extrinsic motivation entirely. So we see the importance of motivation. And we know that in time motivation, it's rooted in the goodness of God, but it's also focused on the goodness of others. So let me take you now to chapter 2, verse 17. We'll pick back up. He says, but when we were separated from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in presence, not in affection, we became all the more fervent in our great desire to see you in person. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, in fact, tried again and again. But, what does it say? Satan thwarted us. Now, this is an amazing statement. Now, Paul, you have to understand, Paul is an apostle. He's, he's given supernatural gifting from God. He is somebody receiving God's word, and, and it's going to live on in the New Testament. Paul writes 13 books in the New Testament, ultimately. So he is in a, a man that's in a position, an authoritative position to say, that's Satan at work. That's not, sometimes we, we give Satan way too much credit. Uh, you, you go out to your car in the morning, you got a flat tire, that doggone devil, he's after me. He's after me all the time, you know. You burn, burn a meal and you got company, oh, the devil, that devil never gives me a minute's peace. No, 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 the devil's not usually involved in that kind of stuff, okay. <laughs> but Paul was in a position Here's what I'm really trying to say. There, there are some of us that are so devil conscious, we'll never grow. We'll never mature. We blame the devil on every, blame the devil for everything. 99% of the responsibility is mine. When I'm walking with Christ, the devil really can't do much. But let's give it credit. He thwarted Paul. So Paul said, I wanted to come back. So, so the people, the Jews, they were saying, oh, this guy's abandoned you. He ran when a little trouble came along, and now he's abandoned you. Paul says, no, 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 I wanted to come back. I wanted to come back not once but twice. I tried, but I was thwarted. What did that mean? How did Satan thwart him? Well, we don't know, but evidently it was something to do with circumstances that made it impossible for him to get back to Thessalonica. Now something cool comes from this. So, Satan thwarted him. Satan wins the victory, right? What is this that we're reading? What is it really called? Is it a book or is it something else? So, so you, somebody say it out loud. What is it? It's a letter. It's a letter. It's a letter. Paul couldn't go to see the Thessalonians. He cared so much that their faith in God stays strong and not be ruined by the accusations, the false accusations. So what does he do? He's praying. He's, he's wondering, God, what do I do? I, I want to strengthen them somehow. I know what I'll do. I'll write them a letter. The man had no notion he was writing a New Testament book that would serve God and man for nearly 2,000 years. He wrote a letter. I say all that to say this. Some of you, some of you are being thwarted by Satan in some area of your life. You don't have to, you don't have to dig around and wonder, is it him or is it not him? But there's something, you know it's the will of God, you know it's good, you want to do it, but something is blocking you, it's keeping you. You literally, physically, somehow, circumstances, you can't do it. And you feel, ah, darn it. But here's what you need to do in that situation. You need to do what Paul did. I believe Paul got before God in prayer, and he started thinking and begging God to give him a way, and God gave him an idea. I'll write a letter. 
And that letter became the foundation of what we now hold in our hands, the New Testament. God maybe wants to get you to a place where that pressure you're feeling, where you're being frustrated, thwarted, blocked, puts you before him in prayer so that he can stir some creativity and you find a whole different method to fulfill the purpose of God. So Satan's attempt to destroy the work of God actually ends up backfiring on him in a very dramatic way and furthering the word of God in ways that he probably never possibly could have fathomed. Let's pick back up in verse 19. Paul says, for, for who is our hope or joy or crown to boast of before our Lord Jesus Christ at his, what does it say? At his coming. Again, 89 verses in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 21 of those dedicated to the second coming of Christ. When we get into chapter 4 and 5, you're going to see they're almost totally dedicated to that topic. It's critical that a Christ follower lives with the awareness of Jesus coming as a reality, a governing reality all the time. He says, for you are our glory and our joy. He's saying, you know, you know what motivates us? These, these Jews are saying that we're motivated with corrupt motives. He says, no, here's what motivates me. I'm looking at that day when Jesus returns and we're all going to be standing before him together. You Thessalonians that stood firm in your faith. And I'm going to be there with you. Man, you're my crown. You're my joy. I'm looking for that. That's what motivates me is what Paul is saying. So when we consider this whole subject of motives and false accusations, there's one powerful motive, the strongest motive of all that Paul alludes to when he is writing yet another letter to the Corinthians. Let me share that verse with you. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 13, he says, If we are out of our minds in a blissful divine ecstasy, it is for God. And some of you know what that's, that's talking about. Sometimes you can't even explain it. Something comes over you and you get a glimpse in your spirit of the beauty of God. And, and you're just swept into ecstasy. That's what Paul's talking about there. He says, if we're out of our minds in a blissful divine ecstasy, it's for God. But if we're in our right minds, it is for what? Your benefit. Motivation. Uh, it's meant to motivate us for the good of others. Why, Paul? Why? Why are you like this? For it is Christ's what? Love, Christ's love, that fuels our passion in what? Motivates us. That's the strongest the strongest motivation of all. Because we are absolutely convinced that he has given his life for all of us. All of us. The love of Christ is the supreme motivator. It causes the greatest, most beautiful conduct. It will bring about the most astoundingly beautiful character. It is resilient. It is strong. It doesn't waver under pressure. It will fight through false accusations if necessary for the sake of others' faith that it will not be destroyed. It will do, frankly, whatever it needs to do to keep getting the word of God and the love of God and the truth about God and the truth about life out to people. And you are possessed, if you're a Christ follower, of that same spirit of God that motivated this man. He lives in you. He waits to continue to keep this work going on through you. Now, we're going to close in an unusual way. I want to share a song with you, a song I stumbled across this year, and it was very, uh, very personally meaningful to me, th this song. Here's the words. It's very simple. 
You are the kindest one I know. It's a song sang to Christ. You are the kindest one I know, gracious in your anger slow. I love the way... (sighs) I love the way you think. I love the way you feel. I love that... I love that beautiful mind, that beautiful heart of yours. I've had feelings for a long, long time bottled up in me as a Christ follower that I've not had words for. And when I heard that song this year, for the first time in my life, I knew what it was. Remember Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, he says, those that worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth. This is worshiping in spirit. I love God's mind. I love the way he thinks. I love the way he feels. I love his plans, I love his purposes, I love his people, I love everything he's about. And and I suspect that's where God has moved many of you in this room as well and wants to move us all. That the love of God motivates us in all we do, in our our relationships with God and our relationships with others as well. Julia's going to come and sing that song for you. I'm going to stay up here until she finishes. Uh, then we'll close out, and then I'm going to ask you all, because it's a very simple song, you just saw all the words, I'm going to ask you to, to join in with Julia as we close out in the song, and I'm also going to ask all of you, and some of you, this is a great temptation, please don't leave, you're only going to burn another two minutes, please, please don't go through the doors until we close the service out, some of you, you know, you, you, you bolt and you want to get your, your car out of the parking lot quickly, God will, God will bless you if you just be patient and soak in <laughs> the working of his spirit through the whole service. Julia.
I'm, I'm sure the Spirit of God wants us all to consider our own motives. Were we the one in the crossfire of accusation? Would we at least know our motives are pure before God and pure with all the people we interact with? Maybe this is God's gentle nudging saying, come on, let's, let's go deeper. Let's, let's, let's clean it up on the inside. Some of us, maybe we're here and we're, we're becoming aware of why we lack energy, enthusiasm, where the breakdown comes. Maybe we're taking in the word of God, but we're not um, meeting it with our trust, which means I'm acting on it. And so I'm not experiencing the divine energy of God. I'm not enthusiastic all the time in any season in life. And maybe God wants to give that to you today. And then finally, some of you maybe have been thwarted by Satan. You're blocked and God has brought you here today because he wants you to get before him in prayer and just wait until he gives you some creative way to move forward with doing that good thing that he indeed intends to be done. So I hope whichever the three of these might be pertinent to you, you'll, you'll take action on. If you would, rise and Julie's going to lead us in this song. And the song is so simple. Please, let's, let's just sing it right out from our hearts. I hope this song resonates in the deepest part of your heart. And not only today, but for the rest of your life. Let me pray with you. Father, may your spirit take this message deeper and deeper as it is needed in each of our hearts and lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.